0: Thanks for tuning in to this Journey Bible Church sermon podcast. Join us every week for fresh sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you listen most. If you're looking for a church in the Kansas City metro, come check out one of our church campuses for worship on Sundays. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. Good morning everybody, Um, again my name is Colton Tatham and I'm Journey Bible Church's West Campus Pastor. Uh, If you are new today or if you are watching online later this week, again thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We're continuing our series on the attributes of God called None Like Him and in this message we're going to explore one of God's attributes that flows from his wisdom and his power And this attribute is called God's sovereignty. Now, to help us understand the meaning of God's sovereignty, uh, I want us to start kind of by, you know, giving us a moment to consider a question. And the question is this. What is the freest thing that you can think of? What is the freest thing that you can think of? Now, when some of you hear the word freest, you might be thinking, oh, okay, what's the most affordable thing? Some of you might be thinking, well, is that even a word, really? And in fact, it is a word. Um, it's the superlative of something that is the most free. And for something or someone to be freest means they possess absolute freedom. And for something or someone to be absolutely free implies that other things and other beings can be less Free. What is the freest thing that you can think of? Maybe another way we can put the question is, is what has more liberty than anything else? What cannot be controlled, contained, or constrained by any outside force? What has the ultimate freedom to do whatever it wills to do? Throughout our series, we've been following A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, And if you've been following along with us, the Bible makes it clear that there are none like God and that there is no being freer than God. God is the freest being that there is. Yet when it comes to this question, A.W. Tozer gives us two illustrations to consider as it relates to God's freedom and sovereignty and our own personal freedom in this world. First, he invites us to reflect on the freedom of a bird. A bird has the freedom to fly almost anywhere it wants, uh, whenever it wants. Only when a bird is caged or clipped or injured does it lose this incredible freedom to fly. Yet even when we set a bird free from its cage, is that bird truly free? A.W. Tozer writes this, to be free as a bird is not to be free at all. The naturalist knows that the supposedly free bird actually lives its entire life in a cage, a cage made of fears, hungers, and instincts. Its freedom is limited by weather conditions, varying air pressures, the local food supply, predatory beasts, and the freest bird is along with every other created thing held in constant check by a net of necessity. It's often easy to think of things in terms of black and white or yes and no, and to forget that the answer to many questions are much more complex. We might say that an uncaged bird is freer than a caged bird, but neither is truly free, and neither is truly the freest. Tozer's illustration shows us that true freedom is much deeper. When we consider all the stuff that created things depend on to thrive and all the natural laws that limit what created things can do, creation itself narrows down our answer to this question to a single being. What's the freest thing that you can think of? Careful thought informed by the Bible or informed by creation will reveal the same thing. There are none freer than God. To help us understand this further, Tozer gives us a second illustration. He invites us to consider what it's like to be a passenger on a grand ocean liner. Imagine that you're taking a European vacation and you and your family have decided, you know what, Uh, we're going to take a transatlantic cruise. So you board a large cruise ship sailing from New York to England. Now, no matter what you try to do, this ship's course has already been set. The proper authorities have already decided where the ship is going before you even get on board. Nothing is going to change that. You're going to board the cruise ship aware that as the passenger, you cannot control its destination. This course-setting work has happened before you set sail. And this course-setting work is a faint picture of what the sovereignty of God is like in relationship to you and me. This is just one way that freer beings like us experience the freest being that there is. World history is much like a cruise ship with a course, a destination, and countless activities prepared for the guests along the way. For you see, on board that European cruise ship are thousands of other passengers. No one is caged. No one is chained up. No one is forced to eat at the lobster buffet nobody is forced to swim in the amazing pool you're not forced to dance under the moonlight on the deck you and the rest of the passengers all have the freedom to eat, sleep, play, lounge, read, have fun so long as no one breaks the safety rules everyone is free to make their own choices and decisions all while the cruise ship continues sailing towards its predetermined port. A.W. Tozer writes, both Freedom and sovereignty are present here, and they do not contradict each other. The mighty ocean liner of God's sovereign design keeps its steady course over the sea of history. God moves undisturbed and unhindered toward the fulfillment of those eternal purposes which he purposed in Christ Jesus before the world began. Now, I wanted to open up our message with these two illustrations, the bird and the cruise ship, because they help us dispel a great myth that keeps us from truly savoring God's sovereignty. And that myth is that human beings have the freest will. That is to say, human beings possess more freedom to do what we want to do than anything else. Rather, the Bible shows us that the most powerful nations, the richest companies, the keenest minds and the greatest leaders are no more than uncaged birds or passengers on a cruise ship in relation to the freedom and sovereignty of God. A freer being will never have will never be more free than the freest being. No matter how hard humanity may try, we will never eclipse the freedom of God, and we will never thwart the sovereignty of God. What that means is that everything God creates is privileged to experience different measures of freedom that he's ordained. Now, with that said, some might be tempted to think, well, God, that's not fair. And if that's the way you might be feeling right now, then you may not be ready for this sermon. To be honest, I'd encourage you to keep listening with an open mind and then later go and reflect on our online message about God's justice and mercy again from two weeks ago. You see, I think the reason that A.W. Tozer makes this his final chapter on the last attribute of God is because God's sovereignty is perhaps the most difficult attribute to both understand and love about God. If you want to understand and love God's sovereignty, it helps if you first have grasped how all of God's other attributes work together and interact in the world. As we'll see in this sermon, God assesses freedom differently than our world does. From God's perspective, there is a kind of freedom greater than legal freedom, or moral freedom, or financial freedom. There's a kind of freedom that is even greater than free will. And this kind of freedom is something that we'll call spiritual freedom. The main point in today's message is that God's sovereignty sets us spiritually free. God's sovereignty sets us spiritually free. Now, the word sovereignty isn't a term that most of us use in our daily conversations, and if you do, you're a strange person, but we still love you. When someone else calls uh, somebody a sovereign, it's another way of calling that person a ruler, a king, or a queen. So when we speak of God's sovereignty, we're speaking of his power to rule, to reign, and to control his kingdom. However, in the news, you may have heard of a reporter from time to time refer to a country's sovereignty before. Perhaps even a country that doesn't have a king or a queen. When you hear the term sovereignty in the news, they're usually referring to a nation's authority and ability to govern itself. Some nations, like the United States, have very strong sovereignty, while other nations struggle to even maintain their own national government. For example, a country like Afghanistan may be recognized as a sovereign nation. They have international borders and national laws. But throughout the last few decades, the instability of its national government and threats from terrorist revolutionaries have caused the international community to question the nation's ability to govern itself. Regardless of your political opinions, its national government required extreme external intervention to keep from collapsing. And whether you support or you despise the current events in Afghanistan today, they demonstrate something very real. They demonstrate the very real effects of what happens when one nation with strong sovereignty decides to suddenly withdraw its power and influence from another nation with weak sovereignty. This isn't the first time that something like this has happened in history. And more often than not, the immediate results are chaotic, calamitous. And sadly, as many of you know, result in the loss of lives. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign, not just over the kingdom of heaven, but he is sovereign over all creation, all governments, all rulers, all people. That also means he is also sovereign over all disasters, over evil, and over every horrible thing that has happened or will happen. Now, listen very carefully. Sovereignty is not the same thing as responsibility. Sovereignty is not the same thing as responsibility. If you confuse the two, you'll fail to understand God's sovereignty, and you'll find it very hard to love God. For example, parents exercise a kind of sovereignty over their children, but we do not send parents to jail if their child commits a serious crime. Governments are sovereign over their citizens, but we do not punish governments when one of its citizens breaks a universally accepted law, then that government brings that lawbreaker to justice. Of course, parents aren't perfect, Of course, governments are not perfect, yet God is perfect, and he is perfectly sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over good, and he is sovereign over evil, but we are responsible for our own actions. We should not blame a sovereign God for showing mercy to unrighteous people in one instance. We should not blame a sovereign God for distributing judgment to unrighteous people in another instance. The point here is that the duty and responsibility to rule over others, a dimension of sovereignty, is not the same thing as being personally responsible for another individual's actions. God holds us accountable to our own choices. Now that we've taken a little bit of time to process some of these hurdles, these barriers that might prevent us from seeing God's sovereignty, how do we define it? A simple definition of God's sovereignty is this. God's sovereignty is his authority and ability to lead everything as he pleases, always, everywhere, and forever. Let me say that one more time. God's sovereignty is his authority and ability to lead everything as he pleases, always, everywhere, and forever. So let's process what this means. First, God's authority. That means God has the rightful leadership position to be the king, and he has the highest right to rule. If there were a holy throne, imagine the most holy throne that you can think of. And only the perfect king is allowed to sit in this throne. And any other person who sat in that throne would just be incinerated. Who could sit in that throne? Well, no one could sit in that throne but God. Only God could sit in there in that sovereign, holy throne without being vaporized. He is the only one who has the right and the authority to rule. To open our message, Corey read for us 1 Chronicles 29, 10 through 13. This is where King David extols God's sovereignty before appointing his son Solomon as his successor. In verse 11, David prays this, For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. What David is praying here is that no one else can claim to possess the heavens, to possess the earth, and to be exalted as the head above all. And that's because there are none like God. There are none freer than God to do this. God is the creator of all, and thus God alone possesses the authority to rule creation as he pleases always, everywhere, and forever. However, being truly sovereign requires more than just having the right title or the right position. It also requires immense abilities. For instance, just because someone gets elected as the president doesn't necessarily mean that they'll have the ability to get things done. Just because someone gets becomes next in line to become the king or the queen doesn't necessarily mean that they're suited to rule fairly or effectively. It requires great authority in one hand and great ability in the other hand to truly possess strong sovereignty. And when we speak of divine sovereignty, it requires the highest authority and the most ability. Again, none are like God. Not only does he possess the highest authority to rule, he possesses all power all wisdom, all justice, all mercy, and everything in between to lead perfectly. Thus, King David proceeds to pray in verse 12, in your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. God's sovereignty is his authority and ability to lead everything as he pleases, always, everywhere, and forever. Now, we've only scratched the surface here, and God's sovereignty is a very deep and wide subject. Um, To outline where we're going to head next, I want us to look at just two dimensions of God's sovereignty today. First, we're going to look at how God exercises his sovereignty. And then second, we're going to look at how God's sovereignty works to set us free. So how exactly... Does God exercise his sovereignty in the world? Well, there's three ways. Uh, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Colossians 1, 16 through 17, and we'll also have it up on the screen. Here we discover that one of the ways that God exercises his sovereignty is through something called preservation. God's preservation means that God upholds all things. Speaking about the power of Christ, Colossians 1, 16 through 17 says this. For by him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And here's our key text: And in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together upholding all things always everywhere and forever is one of the ways the bible tells us god uses his authority and his ability to lead creation remember back to the bird cage illustration we asked the question if an uncaged bird is truly free and the answer to that question is well no not really While the bird may no longer be caged by bars, it's still restrained by its own nature, its environment, and countless other variables. So are all the other factors that are beyond that bird's control, are they just a product of random chance? According to the naturalist, the answer to that question is yes, but according to the Bible, the answer to that question is no. God is the one who sovereignly upholds all things beyond our control. Uh, One of the fun family restaurants we used to go to when I was a kid was the Rainforest Cafe. Anybody been to the Rainforest Cafe before? Yeah, it's an amazing place. It was this big rainforest-themed restaurant. It had animatronics, tropical fish aquariums, and it was just a cool place to go as a kid. Um, I'm not exactly sure how the restaurant helped the rainforest, um, just, just being honest, but it was still a fun time. Uh, entering into one of the restaurants, I remember there was a big fountain. Yeah, it looked something like this. Um, it was a fountain of a statue of a muscular man, which I always thought was kind of odd, uh, carrying this big sculpture of the world on his back. Um, I later learned that the statue was a depiction of the Greek titan named Atlas. Uh, even the Greeks believed something divine upheld the world and the heavens and the sky and everything in it. But what the Greeks got wrong in their mythology is that God doesn't just uphold the big things in the cosmos. He upholds and sustains the smallest things in the cosmos too. A.W. Tozer speculates this. we There even one datum of knowledge, however small, unknown to God, his rule, his sovereignty would break down at that point. To be Lord over all the creation, God must possess all knowledge. And were God lacking in one infinitesimal modicum of power, that lack would end his reign and undo his kingdom. That one stray atom of power would belong to someone else, and God would be a limited ruler and hence not sovereign. God's preservation of creation doesn't just apply to the big things or the things that we think are the most important. It applies to everything. God sovereignly upholds all things, and it applies just as much to the galaxies, to the supernovas in existence, as it does to a nesting bird, or an infant's heartbeat, or a molecular reaction, or the breath in your lungs. God's preservation applies just as much then as it does to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ and the expanding mission of the church. But God does more than just uphold all things through his sovereignty. God also guides all things. God's sovereignty is at work in all things and through all things in creation. And this is something theologians like Wayne Grudem call concurrence. It has to do with the way God cooperates with all of creation and every human being to guide absolutely everything to his desired destination. Now remember back to the cruise ship illustration. God's concurrence is the way that he sets the course of the ship towards its destination. And the way that God, kind of like the captain and the crew, directs all the passengers aboard the ship until it reaches its planned destination is a lot like what concurrence is. You know, the concurrence is the opposite of a fire and forget missile. A concurrence means that God is intimately involved in guiding everything in the best possible way for the greatest possible good. Concurrence is where God's mercy, God's wisdom, and God's power all sovereignly converge to encounter our will. Jeremiah 10:23 says this: says, I know, O Lord, the way of man is not in himself. That it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Jeremiah implies that if it is not in man to direct his steps, then it must be in God who guides his steps. Now, concurrence is something that's very easy to misunderstand. Uh, Some take concurrence so far as to say that God is no more than a puppet master. He's a puppet master, and we're just all puppets here to do his bidding. There's no such thing as real choice because God has already predetermined all of our choices. The problem with this way of thinking is that not only does it contradict the way the Bible speaks of God holding all beings accountable for their actions, we're held just as accountable for our good deeds as we are for our evil deeds, but viewing God as your puppet master is an oversimplification of the way God's sovereignty interacts with our will. A better way to view God's concurrence is actually more like that of a patient who's working with a physical therapist. Uh, Some of you may know that my wife, Kristen, just had rotator cuff surgery. Yay, fun. Uh, She had an 85% tear in her shoulder tendon. Uh, Her surgery went well, but she'll still be recovering for several more weeks. And part of her recovery requires her to meet with a physical therapist multiple times a week, doing what? Well, learning how to reuse her arm again. Similarly, God is a great physician, and we are all his patients who have been crushed in many ways and broken by sin. By his mercy, he sympathizes with us. By his wisdom, he sees the best possible path to healing. And by his sovereign concurrence, he applies his power perfectly to guide even the most broken and rebellious person according to his grand redemptive plan. No patient is ever forced to listen to their doctor though. A patient can refuse treatments that heal. A patient can refuse therapy that strengthens their body. And apart from the saving grace of God through Jesus Christ, we would all end up as sick patients destined to never recover but praise God for his grace. Even though we don't deserve it, God is the great physician working through Christ to prepare every believer for a glorified body and a soul impervious to sin. Now, some atheist philosophers have charged God as being a crutch to human society, but these philosophers have much too high a view of themselves and of people. As God's word accurately puts it, the human race is on absolute life support. If God were not sovereignly at work to establish our daily steps, there would be no way forward for us beyond disaster. Perhaps a better way to think of the world is not as a cruise ship, but as a medical ship. With patients so enslaved to sin, That some would rather jump off the boat than let the doctor heal them. Now, I hope that reflecting a little bit on God's sovereignty so far has helped you to understand God better. But more importantly, I hope that it helps you to love God more. God's sovereignty means he upholds all things. He guides all things. And lastly, God rules over all things. Another term for God's activity of ruling is God's governance. Uh, Wayne Grudem clarifies God's governance in this way. He says, God has a purpose in all that he does in the world, and he providentially governs or directs all things in order that they accomplish his purposes. Whether you like yours or not, governments are not aimless civil institutions. They are human institutions that are formed to accomplish some kind of greater purpose. According to America's fourth president, James Madison, it's the government's purpose to protect and improve the lives, liberties, and properties of people, as well as the internal order, improvement, and prosperity of the state. Whether or not you agree with James Madison is beside the point here. The point is that every human government sees itself as having some kind of purpose. That purpose can change, that purpose can be helpful, that purpose can be flawed, it can be evil, selfish, it can be accomplished, it might be unachievable. God's governance, though, is superior to any form of the world's governance. God rules the world in such a way that he achieves his purposes always, everywhere, and forever. Reflecting again on the words of King David in 1 Chronicles 29, he prays, Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Without a doubt, King David recognizes that God's rule is the highest rule, not his own. His earthly throne, his earthly riches, his earthly power, his honor, all flow first from the hand of God. Therefore, his, rule, his role as the leader of Israel is to submit to and to serve the purpose of the kingdom of God. and the New Testament, we're told in Philippians 2, 10-11, that God is ruling the world in such a way so that the name of Jesus, at that name, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Today, the church and the world exist in a sort of in-between. We exist in an in-between state where the kingdom of God God is here, but it is not yet fully realized. Uh, We exist in an in-between state where the dominion of sin has been defeated by the cross, and yet its power is still at work in the world. We exist in an in-between state where God is governing the church and the world toward a final eternal act in history, but yet that act is not quite here. You see, if God, though, is ruling all things, and you call yourself a servant of God rescued by Christ, then you are no longer a citizen of the world of nations. We who are in Christ are first and foremost citizens of heaven. We are God's appointed ambassadors to the world. And just like King David, it is our duty and our privilege to represent the one true sovereign Lord to the rest of the world. We could grumble. We could complain. We could hide. Or we can be the light of Christ shining to a dark world lost in the darkness and stuck in the in-between. Now by way of review, We've looked at three ways that God exercises his sovereignty. That is his authority and ability to lead everything as he pleases, always, everywhere, and forever. First, God's preservation means that he upholds all things. Second, God's concurrence means that he guides all things. And third, God's governance means that he rules all things. God's sovereignty also means that he has a purpose. And when we survey the Bible, I don't think we can say that there's just one purpose that God has to accomplish. However, one of God's ultimate purposes revealed in the New Testament is to sovereignly set us spiritually free. Let's take a look at Galatians 5.1. Here, Galatians 5.1 says this, for freedom, so we're talking about the purpose of freedom, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. This yoke of slavery is the power and dominion of sin in our lives. One of the great illusions that many believe is that all human beings have free will. However, sentience, and consciousness are not the same thing as truly having a free will. A more biblical way of thinking about this is that all human beings lost their free will the moment the human race was enslaved to sin. The entire book of Genesis, in fact, we looked at some of those stories in our last sermon series, is all about the inability of the human race to do anything good apart from the sovereign intervention of God. It's Joseph himself who reveals in the last chapter of Genesis what man meant for evil, God sovereignly used for good. Our sinful spiritual condition is much worse than we typically assume on a daily basis. To truly have free will we must first be set free from our slavery to sin. Jesus himself says in John eight thirty four, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Now, I hope that not a single one of us would consider a caged up or chained up person to be truly free. But this is the spiritual reality of every human being who is cursed to be born into this world. And in light of this awful dilemma, there is still good news. And that good news is is that God is sovereignly working to set us spiritually free. Last week, we celebrated with Pastor Rex how God's amazing grace through Jesus Christ sovereignly works to give us new life through faith that we don't deserve. And yet, as we close, I want us to celebrate some other ways God sovereignly sets us free from sin. First, God's sovereignty sets us free to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So many people in this world have heard about the name of Jesus, but all they do is know him in name only, and many of them have come to associate the way of Jesus as the opposite of experiencing freedom. However, resisting God by making ourselves the highest authority always leads to frustration rather than fulfillment. The people who are most fulfilled in this life are not the ones who are going to attain all that the world has to offer. Those that are the most fulfilled are those who discover the freedom of contentment in Christ. The most fulfilled people are those who have been set free to follow in the way of Christ, guided by the Holy Spirit. Frustrated people are those enslaved to anxiously satisfy their next impulse on their own. They're enslaved to feed their next craving on their own. They're enslaved to rid themselves of their boredom on their own. They're enslaved to face the fear of the unknown on their own. But through Christ, God sovereignly sets us free from the frustration of our sins, and he fulfills us with a new eternal holy purpose. Secondly, God's sovereignty sets us free to be thankful For many, it's very easy to be bitter and to hold a grudge than to let go and free ourselves of cynicism and resentment. The good news about God's sovereignty, though, is that it gives Christians more reasons than anyone else to be grateful. For instance, you could grumble about current events in the news, or, You could remind yourself of God's sovereignty and say, this is an exciting time in history that God has ordained for me to live in. You could complain about the state of the world or the condition of the church, or you could ask yourself in light of God's sovereignty, what holy purpose does God have planned for me now? You could hide in a hole Waiting for the future, or you could inspire yourself with God's sovereignty and ask, What talents has the Lord entrusted to me to help bring his purposes into a fuller fruition? Compared to the church, the world does not have a lot of amazing things to look forward to. But because God is sovereign, And is at work to make all things new His sovereignty sets us free To be thankful for how he is at work in the present To bring about a greater future And as a result Christians should be the most joyful And the most thankful people on the planet Because we can trust in God's sovereignty Lastly, God's sovereignty sets us free to be patient Even in the hardest circumstances and in the most difficult situations, God can sovereignly sustain us to persevere. Whether you consider the tragedy of Job, Naomi's loss, or the incomprehensible suffering of Jesus Christ at the cross, God sovereignly sustains his people to faithfully endure pain and persecution in a way that the world cannot even fathom facing. Romans 8.31 declares, if God is for us, who can be against us? Resting in God's sovereign purposes is ultimately what can set us free to patiently endure any hardship, any doubt, that God may have ordained for us to experience. Now to drive this last point home, I'd like to close our message by reading a few selections from an article by the Gospel Coalition. Uh, This article came out on August 16th and is titled, How Afghan Pastors Reflect on God's Sovereignty. In early July, Afghan pastors and church leaders made a difficult decision. They decided to formally register their faith with the Afghan government. What an absurdity to register as Christians in an Islamic Republic that prohibits a person from converting to Christianity. Against the advice of many, these Afghan church leaders felt compelled for the sake of future generations to legally declare their true faith in Christ. This past weekend, we met in an Afghan English church retreat. On the first night of the retreat, We learned that a pastor in Afghanistan received a letter from the Taliban, reading, We know who you are, what you do, and where to find you. By Saturday, the Taliban were at his door, but he had gone into hiding. Praise God. As news arrived on Saturday that the Taliban was already walking the streets of Kabul, We wept and prayed with our Afghan friends as they scrambled to make phone calls to family members who had hoped to leave for a safer location. Nobody was able to leave. The roads and flights had already closed. Of all topics, on Sunday morning we tackled the plagues in Exodus 7 through 11. At times Pharaoh hardened his heart. At other times God hardened Pharaoh's heart. An Afghan evangelist in the room added, Don't forget that God called the most wicked king on earth, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, in Jeremiah 27.6 and Jeremiah 43.10. God is most certainly calling the Taliban my servant. Since this weekend, more disturbing reports are coming in. And the life for the Afghan church is at the beginning of a new chapter. Young Christian girls are being pursued by the Taliban. The Taliban just raided the home of another church leader and confiscated his Bibles and literature. Here in Memphis, our Afghan pastor wrote, I don't even have words to pray now. Yet tomorrow, he will somehow broadcast a live satellite message of hope from God's word into Afghanistan on Facebook. The potter is crafting his vessels For his purposes. God's sovereignty sets us free to be fulfilled, sets us free to be thankful, and perhaps most importantly to remember this week, God's sovereignty sets us free to be patient even when an outlook seems bleak. Let's pray. Father God, you are the Lord and there are none like you. God, your sovereignty is perfect and absolute. You uphold all things, you guide all things, and you rule over all things. God, even when it is difficult for us to make sense of your purposes in our pain, our suffering, and our loss, help us to love you more. Protect us from a cynical spirit Father, our hearts hurt for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Our hearts break for what their persecutors are doing to their families and to the church. Please, God, by your sovereign power, we pray that you would act to deliver your people and to transform the enemies of the cross through the saving grace of Jesus Christ. God, by your Holy Spirit, Help us not to return to our bondage to sin this week. Free us to feel more fulfilled by Christ. Free us to be more thankful in Christ. And free us to be more patient like Christ. All this we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and we'd appreciate a positive rating and would encourage you to share this program with a friend. Thank you for listening.